my goodness, I love being here at this church, and I can tell you that when they call, I will, God willing, find a way, and I love your pastor and Suzanne, and just so pleased to serve you this morning. I love getting into the scriptures with a group, and I'm going to ask you if you would please uh, turn with me if you've got a Bible with you, and if you don't but want one, our ushers that you'll see today have Bibles they can hand out to you, and we'd be so pleased for you to have one. I, I love online Bibles, and I am looking at an electronic Bible at least several times a day during the course even of the weekend, but during the weekday when I'm at work, I mean all day long. But there's something about also holding a hard copy of it, that you just feel the weightiness of it. And you're just reminded that every single word has a phrase and every phrase has a sentence and every sentence has a paragraph and every paragraph has a chapter and every chapter has a book. And that there's an Old Testament and a New Testament and the weight of it. And I also feel like there is... a something that attracts us when we get in some passages of scripture that intrigue us, then we are prone to look before it and after it for its context. And just the more we open it, the more we're drawn into it. So please feel free to do that. And please know, if you're new with us today, there's just no page that is of greater help than the table of contents. Just look at it. Everybody starts the same way. That person that's got that ratty Bible beside you, it started exactly the same way without them having any clue where to turn it. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, I'm about to read to you verses 1 through 9. And before I do that, let's, let's pray together. Lord, it is my great joy and honor to be able to be a servant to these people today. And, and that is my true estate. And it is also my true desire. So thankful for this church so thankful for our time of worship. And I want to say to you again this morning, Lord, you are so worthy of it. And we come to you, Lord, this, this very book says in the fourth chapter as it talks about spiritual gifts, let him who speaks speak the words of God. And so I ask you that with everything that I have in me, Lord, would you animate the words on the page, Father? Would you cause someone that maybe just is visiting with a friend today and has never really had an appetite for Scripture and doesn't even get it, would you cause them to awaken to your spirit through your sacred and beautiful, infallible words this morning? We adore you. We give you our focus. We give you all our gratitude. And in this, in the glorious name of Jesus, we ask these things. Everybody say hallelujah and amen. For, oh, say it a little bit louder than that. Because the first way I ever served my church after I surrendered to ministry at 18 was to teach aerobics in our church gym. And so I'm used to participation. That if I do grapevine, you do grapevine with me. You understand what I'm saying? So when I get into the passage, you get into the passage too, if you're willing. And let's begin reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those chosen Leaving his exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. How's that for some Trinitarian theology? May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his great mercy... 
He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through a faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this. Even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look with me through 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and so you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, which the New Testament teaches to us is ever happening. You and I who are in Christ have been saved. We are being saved, and we will be saved. And so he's talking about that that full work of God until we see the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want you to just listen for a moment to all of these adjectives. Not just mercy, but great mercy. He doesn't just speak of hope, but he speaks of living hope. Stacks up three adjectives for inheritance. It is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. He speaks not of time, but of short time. Not just joy, but of inexpressible and glorious joy. Inexpressible. Have you ever had a time when God so filled you with gratitude or wonder or praise that for whatever reason, what you sensed inside or you sensed outside at the look of something glorious that he put before your eyes? Has it ever been where your soul felt something that your words could not articulate? That's a little bit of what he's talking about here. Sounds like the kind of enthusiasm as we hear all of these adjectives that a first-year worship leader might have, huh? Or maybe a group of college students leaving a passion event in Atlanta in early January, right? But the thing is that it's not. This letter was written some 30 years after the cross and resurrection of Jesus by the Apostle Peter. What I want to present to you with great joy this morning is that what you're reading here in these passages is not a honeymoon phase, this is not something that we look back on and go, I remember when I felt that way. I remember in the early days of my faith when I could have said all of those things as if all of those things are behind us because that's not the case here. This is no honeymoon phase of faith. And what I'd like to suggest to you, and hope at least in part to convince you of enough to study it for yourself, is that not only is this not a honeymoon phase, it's not something you could even have in a honeymoon phase until that faith has been tested and tested and tested 
and tested. And the reason why that is wonderful news is because we are being tested and tested and tested and tested. Masterful words. Written somewhere before 64 or 65 or 66, because that would be about the time that Peter was martyred under the rule of Nero. It would have been probably a little closer to the first fires of persecution that may have been closer to 60 or 62, but this is far into his walk of faith. Far into a time when he has been tested in all sorts of of ways. I want you to notice how dense it is with doctrine. God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, being sanctified by the Spirit, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, goes into our blessed hope, our new birth, our inheritance because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into the fiery trials that come to prove us genuine, dense with doctrine and gurgling with feeling. And so I present to you as this being an exhibit of a very mature walk of faith. And the reason why I bring this up is because all of us know this. This will be, this will be such um, a repetitive thought to most of us in this room. But we have so many false dichotomies of how this has to go. You know what I'm talking about. We, we want, we'll say, well, I really want to go to a church that is word-oriented. And then someone else will say, I really want the spirit and they'll think that's two completely different churches. We've all of this thought of, I had a conversation just a few nights ago at a table, and I just, I listened because I'm old, and because I know there are some things you can't tell someone, they just have to find it out for themselves. And so I just sat there and winced a minute because I thought life's going to probably get a little bit rough, as it always does, not because this was said, but there was just this going on and on about hating the music today because of all the emotionalism and people raising up their hands. And she says, it's an intellectual thing, not an emotional thing. I thought, why are we choosing between those two things? Because here is the apostle Peter. You would find the same thing in Paul. So dense with doctrine, walking in the truth. And yet these were people that could say, to have a joy that is inexpressible, a love that is nearly undefinable, what Paul would have called love incorruptible, to have a living hope. These are things that all went together that the better they knew him, the more they sensed it. We, we don't understand that wholeness in Christ is integrating both of those things, feeling and knowing. And the reason why it's so important that both of those things are engaged in our walk of faith is because one of them carries when the other one doesn't. Sometimes when I don't feel anything, I got to know what I know. Can I hear anybody amen that? And sometimes when I don't really know exactly what I know. Has anybody ever like just been like paired back to the bone and gone, I know one thing, Jesus is Lord, that is it, that is it. Anybody besides me? 
where it's just like, okay, I, I've decided I know nothing now, nothing at all. But, but Jesus is Lord. I, I know that much. And so when the intellect, it feels like what you know, I, I, don't, I don't even know, I know nothing anymore. But what you sense in your heart, what can overwhelm you just with the sunrise, the faithfulness of my God, whose mercies are new again this morning. Living hope, a love divine, all loves excelling. The hymnist said, inexpressible and glorious joy. In fact, to such a degree that he is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, ordained word for word by the Holy Spirit, he is transferring to his reader what he himself feels. He goes, you have not seen him, but you love him. And chances are everyone he was writing to could nod their head. But as we listen to it today, we're thinking, well, I, well, I don't know if I do or not. But have you ever felt something so strongly you thought everybody does? Every now and then I'll just be worked up over a verse and I'll look at people, the women that I'm teaching, and I'll think to myself, I mean, isn't this the most fun you have ever had in your life? Why? Because it is to me. Because I love it. Because it gets the blood flowing in my veins. This was Peter. He said, don't, don't you have a joy that you cannot express? Can you imagine? There just is no more powerful testimony than one that is clearly coming from a person who knows of what they speak. And here's what I want to suggest to you. Peter did not grow out of it. He grew into it. And I hope to prove that to you in Scripture. I want you to imagine with me what this man had been through by this time. Words coming from the pen of one who had faced his fears and sometimes faced his cowardice, faced his weakness, had been rebuked in front of a crowd by the apostle Paul, who Peter might have thought, you've known Jesus five minutes, five minutes. All the things he'd been through. The name of this message is the unexpected gift of disillusionment. And I hope to be able to say to you before this message is over that if you find yourself disillusioned in this season of your life, embrace it. It has got a beautiful, beautiful place to take you if you will take an honest journey and if I will take an honest journey. It is the single foremost word I have heard from people in direct messages, in a number of messages that are public messages online, in letters beyond number, in conversations, in dialogues that I've either been part of or overheard. I'm so disillusioned or I've been so disillusioned. It might be about this or that. It might be about things that are, that are of faith. It might be of things that are just of government, of politics, whatever it is. I'm just disillusioned. So I wonder if we might look at a little bit of the opportunity that Peter had that he most certainly would have dealt with disillusionment. So you know that what is going on in your life presently 
this can still be you, a person with living hope, a person looking forward to their inheritance, knowing that it is of a greater reality than the chair in which you sit and the walls that surround you today. Having inexpressible joy. Because this is a guy that would have experienced disillusionment with others, with himself, with Jesus himself, with the plan, you name it. I want you to glance with me. You're here in 1 Peter 1, but I want you to just glance with me for a moment to Matthew chapter 16. These verses will probably be familiar to you because parts of Peter's story are familiar to us. He has a certain reputation and he earned it, both good and bad. But I want you to just see if this is not a picture of our lives, I don't know what you call it, or maybe my life. Look with me in Matthew chapter 16. I want to start reading at verse 15. Of course, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do they say that I am? And in verse 15 of Matthew 16, he says, but you, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will, be, will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. Go with me to verse 21. And from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary, necessary, necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and raised on the third day. And Peter took him aside. I want you to imagine they're in this crowd, either small or large. Peter is going to get him by the arm and say, could I have a moment? You know why? Because Jesus is embarrassing himself. He takes him to the side and he says, oh, no, Lord. It says that he literally rebuked Jesus. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turns and he looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns. You are thinking about human concerns. I want you to look at this. I mean, these are right on top of one another. And doesn't that, isn't that how it happens? I don't know about you, but isn't it just a few paragraphs later? I mean, you've just been brilliant. Just been absolutely brilliant. And a few paragraphs later, you're just an idiot. I'm just an idiot. It's like, what, what in the world happened? And part of that, I think, pulling him to the side was, why? Well, because he'd been given the keys. You know, I mean, like, I got the keys. Have you ever had that moment when you knew that you handed the keys over to, to a kid that was too young to drive? And then what Jesus would have known is, oh, was he ever going to learn to drive? And so were the rest of them. And, of course, that's not the kind of keys it was. But it took a lot of guts. And see, Peter thought the same thing that we are so tempted to think. And, I mean, like, this is, this is going to be the king seated on the throne in front of everyone, and we are his cabinet. I mean, this is going to be grand, and it's going to be glorious, and it's going to be impressive. 
If we know the basic storyline of the gospel, we already know a couple of things about Peter. He was bold, if not brash, talking when he should have been listening. Case in point, we return just another page to Matthew chapter 17 when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there he is transfigured before them. And they see him talking with Moses and Elijah, and Peter literally interrupts them to say, I have a brilliant idea. We are going to build three tents up here. Let's just stay up here, build three tents, one for each of you. A voice speaks. Now, he knows nothing of what a transfiguration is until this moment, but every Hebrew boy knew the stories of God speaking out of a cloud, and a voice comes thundering out of the cloud. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Translated, shut thee up. Thouest does not know what thouest is even talking about. Fast forward to Matthew 26, the night of the Last Supper, that one of them was a betrayer. Can you imagine finding that out at the dinner table? They literally looked around going, who is it? Who is it? Can you imagine the disillusionment of that? Then the soldiers come up to arrest Jesus and they know then who the betrayer is because Judas, who has left them, now comes and kisses Jesus on the cheek, and, and it's obvious. And the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and they lay their hands on him. And when they do, Peter pulls out his sword, and he cuts off an ear of the servant of the high priest, who is probably the one laying his hands on Jesus under the orders of the high priest. Peter wasn't having it because he had a militaristic calling. And he gets rebuked by Jesus, who picks it up and sticks it back on the man's head. Now, I, I can't help you with that. I can't help you with that. But isn't that us? Don't we love to use our sword to cut off people's ears? I thank God that Jesus is healer enough that after all the ears we have cut off with our swords, he can pick them up and stick them back on, pick them up and stick them back on, and pick them up and stick them back on and go here a little more and hear what is the truth about me. We want a Savior we can slice ears off for. That's what gets us going. We want a commander of our battalion, of an army in our culture wars then this is what might have been the worst disillusionment of all. We who have judged everyone else have to look in the face of our own failure. Anybody done that but me? Anybody? Matthew 26, 31, Jesus says to them at that table tonight, all of you will fall away because of me. Peter, I mean, just this was such a good time to be silent. Everyone may fall away from you. But I will never fall away. If I have to die with you, I'll die with you. Peter, before morning, you will have denied me three times. There is nothing like the shrill sound of a rooster crowing to shatter our illusions. Listen, I, I want to say something to you because we think of all of our own transgressions. And, and if you're like me, they have been many. I come from a very, very rough background very messed up home. I've said to you, I'm sure I said it last year when I spoke here because 
It's one reason I love the church so much. My church was my safe place, not my home. And we often think about all the ways that we can fall into a deep, deep pit of sin. But let me, let me remind you of something. It is pretty serious business to deny that we even have ever known Jesus. I mean, just come right back down to it. I mean, this is not, that is serious business. And not just once, not twice, but three times. The very one who said he'd never do it, the humiliation of that would be awful. The disillusionment of this is not turning out right. I mean, Jesus has been arrested. I went to defend him, and he, he fixed it and just went off with them. You're stronger than that. We didn't follow you for this. But, but here's my premise. This living hope, divine love, this inexpressible and glorious joy did not simply survive Peter's disillusionment. I want to suggest to you that they were directly released out of it. And here is my claim. There is no knowing this kind of living hope, love divine, and glorious joy until God has dismantled our illusions. And I would suggest to you today that few things on this earth and in this journey are more painful Truly, we've not just been disillusioned, many of us, but nearly existentially so, profoundly so. But I want to tell you today, I, I believe that I can tell you this, in truth and by the authority of Scripture, that your real life is on the other side of that very disillusionment unless you decide to just stop there. Right over there with the real Jesus instead of the one that we have created in our own image. So what I'm about to tell you today is to go ahead and embrace your disillusionment, and I'm going to tell you why. I looked up the definition for illusion. What is an illusion? Just a couple of the definitions out of Merriam-Webster. The state or fact of being intellectually deceived or misled. Another one is a misleading image presented to the vision. Another one, and this is my favorite one. Let, let this fall on you as you hear it. Perception of something objectively existing in such a way as to cause misinterpretation of its actual nature. I want to suggest to you that so much of our disillusionment, if it's in the faith, comes down to the fact that we have a perception of something objectively existing in such a way that it has been misinterpreted toward its actual nature. If we make Jesus in our own militaristic image and the commander of our culture wars, no wonder we're disillusioned when people that we thought were real Christians do not agree with us. So what is disillusionment? A couple of definitions. This one from Cambridge. A feeling of being disappointed and unhappy because of discovering the truth about something or someone. Another one, the condition of being disenchanted, the condition of being dissatisfied or defeated in expectation or hope. This is my favorite one. Disillusioned, and this one is from Merriam-Webster's. To free from illusion, 
also to cause to lose naive faith and trust. Disillusionment, to cause to lose naive faith and trust. I want to submit to you that Jesus, in Peter's eyes, when Peter was trying to get him to be the big fighter of all the big battles so that he could forego the crown of thorns to just have the, fa- the crown of, of jewels. It was a naive faith. What you see in 1 Peter chapter 1, that's the real thing. Because why? Because it's built on the real Jesus. It's built on the real gospel. What do we say to losing our naive faith and trust? Amen and amen. We aren't after naive faith and trust. We are after steadfast faith and trust. We are about a sturdy kind of faith that is what causes you to persevere when everything is turned upside down around you. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for a rope, not a ribbon, and certainly not a thread that is attached to an anchor behind the veil so that we can stand and having done all, stand firm in our faith. I want to remind you of something wonderful today, and that is that our Faith is built on fact. These guys did not go to their deaths refusing to renounce Christ because they did not know that they knew that they knew that they knew Jesus had been raised from the dead. The naivety is thinking that we can place our faith and trust in humans and in Christian leaders Rather than in Jesus, our naivety is placing trust in a Savior we have created in our own image out of our own collection of favorite scriptures, plus the issues we feel strongly about in our culture wars. So here's this. What does life look like on the other side of having to question so much of what you thought, believed, were certain of, write about, admired, promoted, banked your life on? Well, that could be a lot of things. But it could also look like Peter, who called it a living hope, who called mercy great mercy, an inheritance undefiled, unfading, imperishable, inconceivable, and unspeakable joy. And though you have never seen him, you love him. See, this is what is called proven character of our faith. It's one of the most important parts of that segment of Scripture. It says that these trials, if necessary, come for the proven character of our faith or the proven genuineness. I love the NIV, the proven genuineness of our faith. Listen, listen, listen. Jesus had allowed Peter to stand at that fire of coals that night and deny him three times so that he could surface the fraud, so that Peter would have to face it, so that they could get down to what is genuine and he could bring it out. See, I'm going to tell you something. If you're in Christ, here is the thing. Jesus knows you have got a person of character in you. He knows there is faith inside of you. And he, he is out to prove us genuine. Here's what we want. We want to prove ourselves genuine. I know that you have been in a situation like me where perhaps you have broken someone's trust. Maybe in a very profound way. Maybe in just a way that is just interrupting 
the freedom of relationship. But here's what we want to do. We want to use our words to fix it. Does, does anybody understand what I'm saying? We want to just tell them, I will be trustworthy from now on. And we want our, wor- we want our words to fix it. Because we, we want them, just believe me. Well, I, I don't believe you because you already made promises that you didn't keep. See, we don't want to be in the tension of it. We want everything to fix in a moment. But here's what Jesus is about. You know what? You're going to have to trust me because you're making promises of your faithfulness when what you need to do is have faith in my promises because I am the only one who could prove you genuine. It is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an eye-opening thought that you and I cannot prove ourselves genuine in faith. The Lord said, you know what? That's my job. You keep walking with me. You keep looking at me. You keep walking honestly, and I will prove you genuine. We've come to demand immediacy from every engagement. We want the problem to go. God wants the people to grow. Anybody? We want what's broken to fix, and he wants what's broken to mend. We want to just know, and he wants us to learn. We say to him, tell me, and he says, I prefer to teach you. We want that delusionment one day to turn into joy the next because we can't stand the tension. But what if you just embrace the tension? Because our lives are lived out. Our lives of faith are lived out in that very tension. What I want to say to you is you may go through cynicism. You may go through all sorts of things. But if you and I will take an honest walk, an honest walk, here's the thing. You will never find anyone like Jesus. People get so worried about people who seem to be walking away from the faith. I'm going to tell you something. It will be impossible to replace him. I believe in the staying power of the gospel. And I believe that to let some people go through their disillusionment, let them go through their cynicism, because if they will take an honest journey, be honest about what's out there, be honest about what is true in the way that Jesus will reveal himself to them, they will encounter the resurrected Lord. They will, they will, I believe that they will, because he's determined. Stay honest in your journey. And he'll prove your faith true, and he will prove that inner cynic a liar. I love how we're told in the scriptures that Jesus came back from the dead, and he appeared first of all before the rest of the twelve to Cephas, who is Peter, all by himself, the one who had blown at the worst of all. We don't know anything about that conversation because you know why? It's not any of our business. We don't get to know what happened in that conversation when Jesus said, I know you're humiliated. And I put words in his mouth here, but I will prove you genuine. See, I want to suggest to you just because I've been disillusioned and just because I've been that cynic, it's that cynic that is the fraud that is not the real you. And he said, you know what, I'm determined to show who you really are. And I, myself, will prove you genuine. The very end of the book of 1 Peter says, 
Through Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Would you pray with me? Lord, we just, we bring you our disillusionment. Or maybe we're able to look back and see that, Lord, you're already doing that. Remembering where we were maybe two or three years ago. And Lord, I pray that something in us is just is willing to consider that it is the furthest thing from naivety to have a living hope, to be greatly mercied and see ourselves that way, and to live toward the day when we will see the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. To build us up in the most holy faith, Lord, sometimes you have to tear down all the false things that we have built. So we say to you today, do it, do it. To the great glory of your holy name. Amen.